Church, please go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to you. So glad that you are all here this morning. You know, I'm almost certain that every single person in this room has watched a movie or read a book. And in the storyline, everything seemed to be building to a particular point and then just fell flat. Know what I'm talking about? You know, the story seemed to be headed to this specific direction, but then it kind of ends unsatisfactorily. For example, I don't know why you would, but if you've ever seen the movie Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail, you know that the movie is absolutely ridiculous, and it ridiculously builds to a point at the end where King Arthur and his army are ready to march against the French castle to take back the Holy Grail. And he even gives this big speech that they're going to conquer and they're going to leave no man alive. And the army starts to march toward the castle. And in this ninth century setting, the British police in their vehicles show up and arrest King Arthur. And the movie just ends. And that's it. And of course... That movie was planned to be that way. It was meant to be ridiculous. But you know, I once read a book, a serious book, called The Giver. And in this, the whole point of the story was that this hero was trying to escape from this dystopian city. And he gets to the very edge of the boundary, and then the book just ends. And leaves you wondering if he ever made it or not. And I hate that book. (laughs) When something like that happens, we use this term. We, We often say... That was anticlimactic. You know, we have this exciting, thrilling tale, and maybe we're even glued to our seats waiting to see what happens, and then, that's a good way to put it, anticlimactic. That word anticlimactic means, here's here's a definition for you, it means causing disappointment at the end of an exciting or impressive series of events. I think it's a perfect definition. And believe it or not, that word anticlimactic perfectly describes our passage today. Now, this passage, you're probably familiar with it. It's been referred to as the triumphal entry because Jesus, the king, rides into Jerusalem. We finally get to Jerusalem. We have been building to this moment for weeks now as Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. We've been reading for several chapters how Jesus has headed this direction. But we get here... And where's the triumph? They call it the triumphal entry, but where's the triumph? The triumph insinuates a ceremony, a victory, a conquering. And I'll admit to you, there seems to be a ceremony here, yes, with the crowd, but there's no victory. There's no conquering. There's no coronation. It's anticlimactic. Why? You know, Mark's whole point, the whole reason why Mark put this in here was to show his readers that everyone's expectations about the Messiah coming to Jerusalem were mistaken. He did not come to do what they thought. It's not triumphal. It's anticlimactic. Anticlimactic 
in our eyes. Maybe a better title would be the anticlimactic entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But that's long and a little awkward, but more fitting. So today in our study, we actually begin a new section. We begin a new section that commentators call the Jerusalem ministry, and it covers chapters 11 through 13. So over the next several weeks, we're going to see Jesus daily in Jerusalem. We're going to zoom in on Passion Week. You might be familiar with that term. And we're going to see Jesus going back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany, and he's going to minister in Jerusalem. And particularly, he's going to minister at the temple. So if you're ready for the not-so-triumphal entry, say go. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Right, right, uh, reads this way. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethany, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Here's your first point this morning. The king's entry is anticlimactic, because of his humble ride. First of all, it's anticlimactic because of his humble ride. Now, he's not quite at Jerusalem here in verses 1 through, through 1 through 3. He's east of Jerusalem. And nearby, there were two towns, Bethphage and Bethany. And I brought a little map to kind of show you where they are exactly. They're in that area around Bethphage and Bethany right there, near what we would call the Mount of Olives. By the way, the town Bethany still exists today. Bethphage does not exist, and its exact location is not known, but it was somewhere around there. And he's around this area called the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is this mountain range that, again, was east of Jerusalem, and it actually gets its name from olive groves that at one time covered the land. And there's a lot of biblical significance about the Mount of Olives. David fled from Absalom to the Mount of Olives in 2 Samuel 15. Excuse me. King Solomon built pagan temples on the Mount of Olives when he turned away from God in 1 Kings 11. Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of the Lord at the Mount of Olives in Ezekiel chapter 11. And Zechariah, Zechariah tells us that the Lord of hosts will stand on the Mount of Olives and the mountains will split in two in Zechariah 14. And by the way, that event has yet to happen. So this is a very significant spot where Jesus is right now, and he sends these two unnamed disciples to one of the villages, Bethany or Bethphage, we're not sure which, and he tells them to go get this colt. And he says something important about this colt, this foal of a donkey. He says, on which no one has ever sat. And that's important. I'm going to come back to that here in a minute. But the disciples, they get this colt, and they're to untie it, and they're to bring it back to Jesus. And if anyone tries to stop them, they are to say to them, the Lord has need of it. What happens? Look at verse 4. And they went, and they found the colt at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. The disciples find everything exactly as Jesus had said, exactly as Jesus had planned. They find the colt tied to a door. Now, presumably, this is the door of a house. And they begin to untie it. And Mark tells us that some standing there asked them this question. The Gospel of Luke actually tells us that it was the owners of the colt. They see the disciples untying it. And they're like, 
what are you doing? Which is an appropriate question. If you saw somebody walk up your driveway and start to get in your car, you would say, what are you doing? Some of you out there would shoot first and ask questions later, but that's beside the point. What's interesting here, interesting to us maybe on, on, in this century in the West, is that when the owners hear what the disciples have to say about Jesus, they just let him go. And that seems a bit strange to us, but let's remember something. Let's remember we're in an Eastern cultural setting. There was less individualistic thinking back then and more communal thinking. Hospitality in the first century was huge, especially in the Jewish world. People shared their homes. They shared their property. If you needed to borrow something from your neighbor in the first century, you could almost guarantee he'd let you have it. And during the time of Passover, which is where we are, that hospitality was even increased. The owners were probably all too eager to lend out the colt. Someone has need of it. Fine, take it. Now, why? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, nowhere in any of the Gospels do we ever see Jesus ride an animal, except here. So why? Why is he asking his disciples to go get this animal to ride on? Well, there's a couple things that we need to know. One, Jesus is about to fulfill prophecy. He's about to fulfill prophecy by riding on this foal. Zechariah 9.9 reads this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That prophecy was meant to communicate the coming of the king, the messianic Davidic king. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy by riding on a colt, the foal of the donkey. That's one thing that's going on here. The second thing is this, and I told you I'd come back to this. No one had ever sat on the colt. No one had ever used the colt for riding. And in ancient times, any animal that was unused, such as this animal that had not been ridden, was suitable for sacred use. Any animal that was unused was suitable for sacred use. And furthermore... There was a tradition in Israel that no one may ride on the king's animal except the king. No one may ride on the king's animal except the king. So Jesus, by doing this here, he is literally making a statement to his identity as the Messiah. He is making a statement as his right to kingship. He is saying, in essence, I have come in fulfillment of the scriptures as the Messiah, Israel's king. He is making that statement But he's making it subtly. He's making it humbly. If you think about it, the foal of a donkey is not a majestic animal. It's not an animal you would expect a king to ride on. It's not an animal that you would expect the king of kings to ride on. And yet Jesus chooses this animal to communicate his humility, not his majesty. This is subtly pointing to his purpose. His purpose is not to conquer, but to go to the cross. The humility of Jesus' ride. He rides a humble foal. Now, what do we do with a passage like this? Is there anything here for us to learn, or is this kind of just describing events that took place? 
Well, there's a couple things that we can learn here. One, we can see here again, and we've seen this all along, we see Jesus' willingness to be humble. We see him walking humbly to the cross. We see him now riding a foal headed to the cross in obedience to his father. And we have seen that over and over and over again throughout the book of Mark. And I've encouraged all of us, myself included, to adopt that same level of humility. But you know, there's something else in this passage that we can learn about Jesus. Jesus has detailed plans to achieve his purpose. He told the disciples right where the foal was. He told the disciples where to go, where to get it, what to say. He has detailed plans to achieve his purpose. Jesus is intimately involved in the details. He doesn't have some kind of you know, vague understanding of the overall plan. No, Jesus knows the plan. He knows the details of the plan. And the same thing is true in your life and in mine. He is intimately involved in the details of your life. Don't ever buy the lie that, sure, Jesus might know the big picture of your life, but the day-to-day stuff he's not into. Don't buy that. That's a lie. He is intimately involved in the details of our lives. That means when I'm stressed because I'm looking for my keys, because I have to get out of the house, I have to get to work and I can't find them, guess what? Jesus cares. When I have to deal for the upteenth time with a broken toilet, Jesus cares. When that guy at work makes a snide remark again, when that family member says something hurtful again, Jesus cares. He is intimately involved in the details of your life, and he wants you to come to him with those details because he loves you. He loves you so much that he gives you the strength to deal with even the small situations in our life. He wants to give you the strength to deal with them in a God-honoring way. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, he gives us the Holy Spirit for many reasons, to lead us, to guide us, to teach us in all truth, but to give us the strength to respond in a God-honoring way. Am I saying that Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to help me find my lost keys? No but to help me respond when I'm stressed to respond rightly. By relying on the Holy Spirit, we can respond in the strength that he's given us so that we don't respond in the wrong way. Christ gives us what we need to surrender to him in whatever situation, be it big or be it small. So I say that to tell you, take comfort, church. Your Savior is highly invested even in the little things in your life. The king's entry is anticlimactic because of his humble ride. Number two, the king's entry is anticlimactic because the crowd is unclear. The crowd is unclear. Let me explain that. Let's jump into verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So the disciples, they get the colt, they bring it back to Jesus. They use their cloaks to create kind of a makeshift saddle. 
And it says that many spread their cloaks on the road. Now, who are the many? Most likely, it's the crowd. Remember, remember, the crowd has been following Jesus this whole way, and now you have people from Jerusalem probably coming out and joining. So you have this huge crowd of people. They've been following Jesus this whole time. They spread their cloaks on the ground. They're making a path for the colt. Others bring these leafy branches. They're doing the same thing. And the question we should ask is, why are they doing this? What's going on here with the, the shouting and the cloaks and the cloaks and the branches and everything? Well, these actions... Laying down the cloaks, laying down the branches, they're actions that signify honor of a person of higher rank. They're honoring a person of higher rank. So spreading your cloak out for someone to walk or ride on was a way of saying, I submit. I'm under you, in other words. And there's an interesting connection here to the story in the Old Testament where Jehu is made king of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 9. In that story, Elisha the prophet had sent someone to anoint Jehu. He was anointing him as king because the current king, King Joram, was wicked. And when Jehu is anointed, he comes out and he tells his servants he's just been anointed king. And then the text says this. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So there is a kingly connection to the actions that the crowd is doing here. There is a gesture of honor here with the garments and the branches, and they're declaring these words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna means save now, or save, I pray. It's a a plea to be saved. And they cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Both of these are expressions from Psalm 118. They were expressions that were used to greet pilgrims who made the journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was very traditional for this to happen. And there are several psalms, that, by the way, that were sung during the time of the Passover, Psalms 113 through 118. They're also known as the Hallel Psalms. And you can think of it as this. These were the psalms that they sung around Passover like we have songs we sing around Christmas time. Same idea. And that's very interesting Because, just because they're saying these words, doesn't mean they're recognizing Jesus as king. Some in the crowd do, but some in the crowd are just following in the tradition. And that's important, because what's going on here slightly veils the true identity of Jesus. Even though Jesus is writing in as their king, it's slightly veiled. It's not clear. Some in the crowd, and we've talked about this as they've been moving toward the Jerusalem, some are expectant that Jesus is going to come and do something. Some are looking to him as their king, but some aren't. Some are just following the normal traditions of welcoming pilgrims who are coming for the Passover, just like in our day and age. Some sing Christmas carols at Christmas time, and they don't get the connection to Jesus' birth. Not everyone in the crowd knows what's going on. The text seems to suggest that some are accepting Jesus as Messiah, as king, and others are simply following the tradition and they don't recognize the deeper meaning. The crowd is unclear. There is a mixture of what's going on here. Some are recognizing it, some are not. And this is very important because this idea of Jesus writing in his king, but it's veiled, answers why Jesus wasn't arrested this very moment. 
if any Jew had simply rode into Jerusalem and everybody was proclaiming that Jew king, Rome would have arrested them for insurrection on the spot. But that doesn't happen. Why doesn't that happen? Well, number one, God's in control. But number two, it's veiled. It's not clear exactly what's going on. It's not precise. It's not precisely clear to the observer. Even the proclamation, and we can read it again in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Even that proclamation doesn't fully identify Jesus as king. That expression welcomes the kingdom clearly, but doesn't identify Jesus as the king. It's unclear. So what's going on? Well, Jesus, as we've said, Jesus is writing in in fulfillment of the Old Testament and in many cultural ways he is writing in his king. But again, it's veiled. The average Jewish person looking at what's going on, hearing the crowd, wouldn't necessarily put two and two together. It would be confusing. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew alludes to this. It tells us that that some in the city of Jerusalem were stirred up when Jesus came, but citizens were asking, who is this? It was unclear. There was confusion. No one ran for a flask of oil to anoint Jesus. No one ran to grab a crown. He was riding in as their king, but it was veiled. The disciples, of course, as we've been talking about, were probably expecting him to ride in as king and do something, and probably there were some in the crowd who were expecting the same, but there were many there that were just confused, just jumping in the tradition. Now, there's significance here because many of you, myself included, were raised in a tradition that calls this Palm Sunday. In fact, you may have celebrated Palm Sunday growing up when Jesus rode into Jerusalem to do Passion Week. But the truth is, even though Jesus rode into Jerusalem as king amid shouts of praise, he wasn't riding in to claim his throne. He was riding in to prepare for his sacrifice. So in a strange way, it was appropriate that the crowd was confused because he wasn't coming to seize his crown. He wasn't coming to take his throne. He was coming to die. Now, Jesus, of course, knew why he was there, but no one else actually knew why he was there. What can we learn from this? The first thing I want to point out is this. Don't be confused about who Jesus is. The crowd was unclear. They were confused in different ways. Some, by the way, rightly identified Jesus as king, but wrongly concluded why he was there. Others completely misidentified him. They didn't even know who he was. And just like back then, there are many, many people today who misidentify Jesus. Identify Jesus for who he is. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Savior. He is God. And I'm here to tell you make no mistake. The Bible is clear on that. John chapter 1 opens with this verse In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And by the way, we know that word, word, there is a reference to Jesus because in verse 14 of that same chapter, John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't misidentify Jesus. He is king, he is savior, he is God. And if you rightly and humbly identify him, then you can be saved from your sin. Romans 10, 13 reads, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To be saved, that means we turn from our sin and we call upon the name of the Lord and you can't do that unless you believe that he is who he is. To call upon the name of the Lord is to recognize who he is and recognize also that you need him because you're a sinner. It is to understand that you're condemned to an eternity in hell unless you embrace Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did for you on the cross. So put your trust in the king. Don't misidentify him, but identify him appropriately as Jesus Christ, the king, the savior. And let me encourage you, if you've never done that, do that today. And if you do have more questions on that, I beg of you to catch me after the service. I would love to talk to you. But you might say, well, what does that say to those who've already rightly identified him? What does that say to us believers? Does this passage teach us anything? Well, don't forget that in this crowd, there were those who rightly identified Jesus, but wrongly concluded what he was there to do. He wasn't there to conquer he was there to die, just like he'd been telling them. For us who know Jesus, the point is this. Listen to him. The disciples should have known what was going to happen because Jesus had explained it three times to them. And similarly, you and I are without excuse we have been given the sufficient revelation of God through his word, the Bible. To misunderstand his plan for us and his plan for the church is an epic fail. We have so much more than the disciples had. We have his full word. You can even get this thing on your phone. We have access to his word, but we also have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, guiding us and directing us. So for us to fail to listen to him is honestly flabbergasting. And yet, I am so guilty of failing to listen to him. So then my question is, how are we, you and I, how are we failing to listen to the Lord? He tells us, for instance, to make disciples in Matthew 28. That's, by the way, is the mission of the church. It's the specific mission of our church. It's what we strive to do. So I'd ask, what are you doing to contribute to the mission? He tells us to worship him alone. What else might you be worshiping or tempted to worship? He tells us to trust in him. Every day to trust in him, even now. Even on October 22nd, 2023, when war is raging on the other side of our planet, where fear is spreading even here in the USA, what does Jesus say? Trust me. He's got the whole world in his hands. We could get more specific. He tells husbands to love their wives. He tells wives to respect their husbands. He tells fathers not to provoke their children. He tells children to obey their parents. And we could go on and on and on. I'm going to come back to my question. 
I'm challenging you, I'm challenging myself. How are we failing to listen? If we don't listen, we're going to make the same mistakes as the disciples. We're going to put expectations on God to work a certain way, just like they were expecting him to work a certain way, and we'll be disappointed because we got it wrong. We weren't listening, so our expectations were wrong. You know, I once sat under a pastor for a short time who got up and preached every Sunday, not about the Word of God, but about a vision that he had had about a huge church that he believed he was going to pastor someday. He didn't expound God's Word. He expounded his vision that he believed God had given him. He wasn't grounded in God's plan. He was chasing his own plan and missing God's plan. Now, that's an epic fail, and that's an epic, epic fail coming from a pastor, but the same can be true of any Christian. We can get distracted and chase what we think is from God and miss what is really from God. So, church, my challenge to you, listen to him. The king's entry was anticlimactic, because of his humble ride. It was anticlimactic because the crowd was unclear. And lastly, the king's entry was anticlimactic because nothing happened. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went outside to Bethany with the twelve. That's it. Nothing happened. Anticlimactic. I picture this in your head. Jesus rides in on a colt. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy. He's received with cloaks and branches and shouts of praise. The crowd is mixed in their understanding of what's going on. The whole city is stirred up, and then Jesus gets there. He looks around and leaves. That's it. Nothing happens. I mean, he's welcomed with shouts of praise. The whole city's wondering what's going on. And Jesus says, this looks nice. I'm out of here. What is going on? Well, the text tells us specifically, Jesus got to Jerusalem and he went to the temple. Now this, by the way, this would have been the second temple. The first temple was Solomon's temple. It was destroyed when Babylon conquered Judah This temple was built after the exile when the Jews returned from Babylon. And later, this temple was known as Herod's temple because it was expanded and refurbished by King Herod the Great. Jesus arrives and he takes a look around. Is he sightseeing? No. Actually, this is not the first time that Jesus had been in Jerusalem. The Gospel of John tells us that. Nothing here is new to Jesus. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? He's doing this because the next stage in his ministry is going to take place right here at the temple. Jesus looks around, and then he returns to Bethany, probably because that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, and it's likely that he lodged with them. But he's going to go back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem every day during this Passion Week. He's got work to do at the temple. And we're going to see that in the weeks to come. So it's almost like he has come and he's surveying his next stage in his ministry. 
He's taking it in. But you know, there's another reason why Jesus does this. Again, he's fulfilling Scripture. He's fulfilling Scripture. Malachi 3, 1 and 2 reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus comes to the temple in fulfillment of Scripture. He takes a look around. He surveys the next stage of his ministry. He knows he's got work to do, but it's late. They're going to go back to Bethany. But there's something else that's interesting. And this takes a little bit of thought, but but follow me here. Jesus is at the temple. What is significant about the temple? That's where you went to meet with God. And that thing is about to become obsolete. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And at that moment, the temple was no longer necessary. And it doesn't say this in the text, but it's almost like Jesus comes and he looks around and his thinking is, this thing is done obsolete, no longer needed. There's ministry to be done here, but the function of the temple is done. The temple was for worship. It was for sacrifice. It was for prayers. It was for access to God. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no longer a need for a temple. We have instant and continual access to God always because the Holy Spirit resides in those who believe. So then my question would be this. Do you take advantage of that? Do you take advantage of the presence of God that resides within you? Do you spend time with God? Do you take any part of your day to just simply be with your creator? I was listening to one of John Piper's podcasts this week. This podcast is called Solid Joy's Daily Devotional. And the description of this particular episode went like this. One of the main reasons we so often fail to have consistent habits of happy, fruitful prayer is simply that we don't plan to. And that's astonishing. Because we have ready access to God any time of the day. We don't have to go to a temple. But... Do we make it a point to plan to spend time with our Savior? Do you plan time every day to spend with your Savior who's given you full access to him? We can have him at any time, but so often, at least in my life, so often I fail to plan that time. So let me ask you, where can you plan into your day time to spend with your Savior? We've been given unlimited access to God anytime, anywhere, yet we so often fail to take advantage of that. We can stop right where we are because God has made it so easy. And if you want your spiritual life to grow in ways you can't imagine, it is necessary to take advantage of the access that God has given you. He died to give us this access. It's too precious a thing to waste. So let me encourage you, and myself included, plan the time and take the time to be with your Savior. 
the anticlimactic entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. What does this story say to us overall? How does Jesus' anticlimactic entry into Jerusalem, how does this minister to us? I think the biggest walk takeaway that we can get from this passage is this. It gives us a beautiful picture of where we are in the spiritual timeline. Let me explain. I want you to remember this phrase, already but not yet. Jesus is already the king, but not yet. He has come to Jerusalem in fulfillment of scripture, but not total. And that idea mirrors where you and I are. We as believers in Jesus are justified. We are declared guiltless because of the blood of Jesus. We are, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, seated, past tense, seated in the heavenly places. We are already redeemed, but not yet. Already redeemed by the work of Christ in us, but not fully, not total. Christ here in our passage is already king, but not yet, not total. That is not totally recognized by his creation. Make no mistake, he's king. His authority expands the universe. Absolutely, this is not a question of authority. It's a question of recognition. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is already, but not yet, and the same is true for us. Right now in the spiritual timeline, we're in limbo. We haven't been fully redeemed. Our new, we haven't received our new bodies that no longer struggle with a sinful nature. That time is coming. Can somebody say amen? The time is coming when our redemption will be complete. We are already, but not yet. That's where we are. And I share that with you to say, fear not, church. Fear not where you are in the spiritual timeline. Your Lord is content with the already not yet. He is content for now. Let us also be content for now with the already not yet. Let's praise God for his redemption in our lives and look forward to the redemption to come. And let me, let me say this too. While we're in this spiritual limbo, we'll go through periods where it seems like Christ's work in us is anticlimactic but it really isn't. It might seem like he's not working, but trust me, he's working. He's working in your life. He's working in mine. Even when we don't see it, he's working. Even when we don't feel it, he's working. Why was the triumphal entry so anticlimactic? Because it wasn't time for Jesus to claim the throne. He had come to die, not conquer. He had come for the cross, not a conquest. He had come to take the penalty of sin, not to inflict justice on Israel's oppressors. Not yet. The next time Jesus rides into Jerusalem, it won't be on a colt. It will be on a white horse. And he won't come humbly to the shouts of confused praise. 
He won't come to a crowd with a mixed opinion of who he is. No, when Jesus comes again, he will inspire dread on the people on earth because everyone will know clearly who he is. That moment, every eye will be open to who Jesus is, and for those who have not received him, it will be too late. And if you wonder where I'm getting all this, I want to close this sermon with Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Follow along on the screen, please. John, the apostle, writes this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Jesus, the King, the King who came and the King who is to come, we praise your holy name. We who believe, we know exactly who you are. You are Savior, you are King, you are God, and we lift high the name of Jesus in praise. We thank you for being God. We thank you for fulfilling Scripture. We thank you for being content for now to live in the already but not yet. And we pray, give us your strength to do the same. Give us the strength as we wait for your return when all will be made right and we will be fully redeemed. Till then, grant us the strength to live for you every single day, worshiping you, desiring you, witnessing for you, making disciples for you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.